Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Elena Maria Viramontes, the Goldwyn Smith Professor of English at Cornell University. Viramontes is the author of numerous short stories and two novels, Their Dogs Came With Them and Under the Feet of Jesus. Viramontes has received numerous awards and honors, including the John Dos Passos Prize for Literature and a United States Artist Fellowship. Her short stories and essays are widely anthologized, and her writings have been adopted for classroom use and university studies. Under the Feet of Jesus is the University of Oregon's common reading book for 2019-2020. The common reading program builds community, enriches curriculum, and engages research through the shared reading of an important book each year. While Vera Montes was on campus October 21st through 23rd, 2019, she gave readings and engaged in discussions with the students and faculty. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Paul. Tell us first a bit about your background and how you came to be a writer. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a journey that um, is uh, not very common. I, was, I, I grew up in a bookless home, and uh, the, only, the only books that we did have were um, World Book Encyclopedias that my father bought. Uh, and, uh, uh, but since they weren't paid for it, we weren't allowed to touch them. And uh, we still have them at my mother's house, by the way, uh, after all these years. I think the year was 1965. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then my, my sister, my sister Marianne, who at that time had a, had a fiancé, uh, who now is, of course, her husband, but had a fiancé in Saigon uh, during the Vietnam War. And she, there was time she couldn't sleep, so she would bring out uh, uh, the Bible and read the Bible. And so uh, I, I I loved going to, to directly to the, a volume of the encyclopedia and bringing one out and taking it to the bathroom and reading it, and at the same time, you know, pulling out the, her drawer and, and reading from her Bible, and these, these, these what I would think are, are parables, or were, uh, there, were, there were stories that were otherworldly to me, and so I would immediately, uh, you know, put the Bible away or else get in trouble, and then, and then, and then repeat the stories to my younger brothers and sisters. So I, I didn't grow up uh, so much in, in you know, this, this abundance of literature, but I did grow up with storytelling. I did grow up with the oral tradition where people told stories on a consistent basis, especially having to do with relatives or you know, things that have happened crossing the border or what have you. So I was, as a child, I very much was attuned to what people were saying. Um, but it wasn't until I got my library card, my public library card, that I, uh, that, that I became liberated, where I was able, just because of the, the skill of reading, I was able to, to trespass these, these, these borders, these, these one stories that are given to people like myself and, and zoom outward into, into a big, uh, larger world. And so, um, uh, yeah, so it was my public library card that got me to thinking about, about Storytelling, reading, and the sacred word. Hmm. That's a wonderful story. Can you tell us how you came to write your first novel, Under the Feet of Jesus? Well, you know, I, um, I tried writing two other novels previous to this, but I always got to, to like page 50, and then I had no idea what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you know, go back to reading and go back to reading. And, uh, and and when I was when I was reading, I was reading this memoir uh, by a by a, a Corvallis, a U, a University of Oregon Corvallis um, professor by the name of uh, Erlinda Gonzalez Berry, and she had written a memoir called Palatitas de Guayaba, you know, ice creams made of, of guayaba, 
and she w she was writing about being raised on a on a on a ranch in New Mexico, and how she and her sisters were not allowed to go into the barn, mm. and only her brothers and her father could. Mm. And immediately that struck me as uh, you know very, the, the, when, whenever there is a prohibition of something because of your gender. Mm because tu eres mujer, you are a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden, it just, it, it piqued, my, it piqued my, uh, my imagination. And I took out a piece of paper and I said, okay, here is the barn. And this young girl wants to go, wants to go in the barn. What are the obstacles? And what, why, why is her desire to go into the barn so important? Mm. And I thought about that and I thought about, okay, what is the barn? What is the symbolism of the barn? What does it entail? Well, there's, you know, animals uh, um, animals uh, live there. They have intercourse there. They birth their mammals there, uh, or else you have the whole, the whole uh, roll in the hay kind of thing, which mm -hmm. which which is all all surrounded by intercourse and reproduction. And so all of a sudden, then it dawned on me that maybe the barn was uh, female sexuality. Hmm. And so, of course, as a coming of age woman, she wants to she wants to know her sexuality. And of course, because of the power of female sexuality, the patriarchal says no. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so that that's that's when I began unspooing under the feet of Jesus. But, but also, it, it's it's a part of my own experience. I, I grew up uh, um, summers uh, picking in East, uh, um, in Easton, uh, close to Fresno. Uh, my whole family did, as a matter of fact. And uh, and my husband, uh, who who <laughs> who who, uh, who I modeled Alejo, uh, was someone who actually followed the crops the crop excuse me the crops mm -hmm. from uh, from uh, um, Edinburgh, Texas, all the way up to Texas into Oklahoma and Arkansas and then all, all into Michigan, following the crops. And at the age of twelve, he was supporting his his family. That's how impoverished. Uh, you know his his family was, um, but he 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 became a, a college professor, an endowed chair at Cornell, and a super super brilliant scientist, hmm. who's now retired. Ah, but wow. uh, but yeah, so taking all of these taking all of these stories, um, I could not not write under the feet of Jesus. Huh. Wow, that's great. Um, the novel is dedicated to your parents and to the memory of uh, Cesar Chavez. Can you say a bit about why you made those choices? Well, you know, uh, in my family, as is as in a lot of uh, Mexican families, uh, the way to the way to make any monies was through uh, going into the agricultural fields and doing the picking. Uh, so my mother and my father met in Button Willow picking cotton. And I and I always that always struck me as something both beautiful and tragic that here they are uh, in this this brutal sort of uh, uh, atmosphere uh, of work, but yet there was that that they were young and they fell in love and they got married and I mean that that's one of my main projects in in writing all the all the all the work that I do one of my Okay, is because I think of my parents, I think of my family, I think about my community as being so important in, in the national narrative of American literature, of his, American historical literature, that I want to bring these stories 
back into these narratives. And I wanted to bring my parents back into these narratives too. And so as a result, yes, I was, I, I very much, that was my first inclination to, 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 to dedicate it to them. In the, uh, halfway through the novel, Cesar Chavez died. And, um, and I actually wrote a, a chapter of the novel uh, that was more symbolic than anything, and it, ha it had the Piscarolas leaving the fields as the sun was setting, and the sun, of course, setting. That was Cesar's um, uh, brilliant sunshine uh, to the farm workers. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't working. It kept working and it worked. And I realized that what I was doing was I was inserting myself into the story. Mm rather than it being Estrella's story. Hmm. So if you notice, she has the, the United Farm Workers yeah. pamphlet in, yep. in her back pocket, but I didn't make it the center because uh, one of the things that I was, I was, at some point I knew this was a story that really had not been told. It had been told with, with the Grapes of Wrath, but not really because the, the Grapes of Wrath, though it, it's, a, it's a masterpiece uh, of literary, um, history, um, there was no Mexicans in there. There was no Filipinos in there. Uh, and so I just thought, no, 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 there's, there, there, you know, there's something that's, that's incredibly missing here. And so I knew that when I was writing this that I needed to do two things. Um, keep myself out of the narrative, and mm -hmm. I actually had a post-it that said, Elena, keep yourself <laughs> out of the narrative, so that I wouldn't impinge and impose my ideals on what uh, these characters were now just spreading before me, mm -hmm. and them giving they giving me the story by which I followed as the writer, and so uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So okay, yeah. So this is a good time to ask you: Would you read a passage? Oh yes, you? yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Uh, this is a, this is one of my favorite passages. I have to say because this is the way I do feel about language, uh, especially after I learned to read. So, uh, and it deals with. Uh, um, uh, Estrella's father has abandoned the family, and Petra event eventually uh, meets and, and stays with uh, another man, and his name is Perfecto Flores. And Estrella is very angry at this. She just, you know, she's very angry that, that she feels that Perfecto has usurped her father's uh, position. <coughs> So what is this? When Estrella first came upon Perfecto's red tool chest like a suitcase near the door, she became very angry. So what is this about? She had opened the tool chest and all that jumbled still inside the box, the iron bars and things with handles. The funny-shaped objects seemed as confusing and foreign as the alphabet she could not decipher. This tool chest stood guard by the door, and she slammed the lid closed on the secret. For days she was silent with rage. The mother believed her a victim of the evil eye. Estrella hated when things were kept from her. The teachers in the schools did the same, never giving her the information she wanted. Estrella would ask over and over, so what is this? And point to the diagonal lines written in chalk on the blackbird with a dirty fingernail. The script A's had a curticule of a pry bar, a hammerhead split like a V. The small eyes resembled nails, so tell me. But some of the teachers were more concerned about the dirt under her fingernails. 
They inspected her head for lice, parting her long hair with ice cream sticks. They scrubbed her fingers with a toothbrush until they were so sore she couldn't hold a pencil properly. They said good luck to her when the pisca was over, reserving the desks in the back of the classroom for the next batch of migrant children. Estrella often wondered what happened to all the things they boxed away in tool chests and kept to themselves. She remembered how one teacher, Mrs. Horn, who had a face of a crumbled Kleenex and a nose like a hook, she did not imagine this, asked, how come her mama never gave her a bath? Until then, it had never occurred to Estrella that she was dirty that the wet towel wiped on her resistant face each morning. The vigorous brushing and tight braids her mama neatly weaved were not enough for Mrs. Horn. And for the first time, Estrella realized words could become as excruciating as rusted nails piercing the heels of her bare feet. The curves and tails of the tools made no sense and the shapes were as foreign and as meaningless to her as the chalky lines on the blackboard. But Perfecto Flores was a man who came with his tool chest and stayed, a man who had no record of his own birth except for the year 1917, which appeared to him in a dream. He had a history that was unspoken, memories that only surfaced in nightmares. No one remembered knowing him before his arrival, but everyone used his name to describe a job well done. He opened up the tool chest, as if bartering for her voice, lifted a chisel and hammer. Aquí, pégale aquí, to take the hinge pins out of the hinge joints when you want to remove a door. Start with the lowest hinge. Tap the pin here. From the top, tap upwards. When there's too many layers of paint on the hinges, tap straight in with the screwdriver at the base, here, where the pins widen. If that doesn't work because your manitas aren't strong enough yet, fasten the vice pliers, these, then twist the pliers with your hammer. Perfecto Flores taught her the names that went with the tools. A claw hammer, he said with authority, miming its functions. Screwdrivers, see, holding up various heads and pointing to them. Crescent wrenches, looped pliers like scissors for cutting chicken or bobbed wire. Old wood saw, new hacksaw, a sledgehammer, pry bar, chisel, axe, names that gave meaning to the tools. Tools to build, bury, tear down, rearrange and repair a box of reasons his hands took pride in. She lifted the pry bar in her hand, felt the coolness of iron and power of function, weighed the significance it awarded her, and soon she came to understand how essential it was to know these things. That was when she began to read. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. You, you said that that was one of your favorite passages. Yes. Wouldn't I say a little bit about why you feel that way? Well, I always <clears throat> felt, I always felt that, uh, that language is, is just like that, that language, could be, that language could be used as a way of, uh, n not necessarily of, 
of complete and total destruction, but really of uh, the unpacking and the renewal and the the regazing and um, uh, you know the the, re the recreation of a new perception of uh, what what um, Jason earlier uh, today called the the inventiveness into existence. I love that when he said that, you know, and so I think this is the the way we can do that is through language, and that language can if if languages can be used as a tool as tools, then my God, we can create anything. Uh -huh. Yeah, oh, wonderful. So I'm an English prof. I'm particularly interested in questions of language and literary yeah. form. Um, some have described Under the Feet of Jesus as a work of social realism, like Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. Others, like my colleague in the English department at U of O, David Vasquez, characterize it as an experimental novel. How do you understand the style you, the, what, uh, you're writing in this book? Well, it's almost like, you know, it, I, I really, I've always been an experimentalist. I mean, if you look at my first collection of, of, uh, of, um, of short stories, in fact, my, my most, one of my most anthologized short stories is called The Caribou Cafe that goes from first to third to, to second to, I mean, and, and switches all, all within uh, maybe 10 pages. And, and you know, it's, it's trans-border, I mean, and, and, and it deals with uh, police brutality and immigration brutality and, uh, and war. And, uh, and so to, to be able to write about these things, one needs to develop new forms for new stories, you know? And so I'm, I'm always trying to find ways of telling these stories, but doing it conventionally doesn't seem to help. <laughs> <laughs> and so as a result, I mean, in, in Under the Feet of De Jesus, I do a number of uh, rotations of point of view. And it, it really, uh, in some ways, it, it, it's jarring to, to, to some uh, readers until they get to see what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. Because I have been told by uh, Professor Paula Moya at Stanford that I am not a writer that writes one story. Mm. That one story is always a combination of stories. And it seems to me that hmm. that's true. There is no way that I could have written Estrella's story without writing about uh, Petra's story, without uh, writing about Perfecto's story, without writing about Alejo's story, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and here we are, you know, here we are so with these, with these uh, and so how do you do that? You, you do it by rotation, and you do it by, by giving each of them the pages that they need to live, to, 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 to sit, so that the reader can sit in the embodiment of each of these characters. So in that case, I think this is why I was called a social realist, mm -hmm. because I was very concerned with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, themes that affect, uh, and also critiques that, uh, that affect, uh, uh, you know, my community. But also, I don't know, I, I, I just felt like as if um, I needed to, to find new ways to tell these stories and to tell all of them in, 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 to tell all of them completely, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. So you've already started to get at my next question. One of the amazing things about this novel is the wide range of social justice issues that its narrative and characters illuminate. So, farm labor, migrant rights, environmental racism, environmental justice, gendered labor, class disparities, food justice, and I'm just naming some of the yeah. things that it engages. Can you say something about how you understand your responsibilities as an author? <sighs> My responsibility as an author is to, um, well, f first, the reason that I engage in all of these themes is 
because I'm writing about poor. Mm -hmm. the, 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 mm -hmm. I'm writing about poverty. And as James, uh, James uh, Baldwin once said, uh, being poor is very expensive, you know? And it's, ex it's expensive because of all these reasons. So many obstacles are, are given to people who are poor, people who are then are more marginalized because of the color of their skin or because of the language that they speak, mm -hmm. um, all the more become, become double, double oppressed. And so, um, I don't know, my responsibility is that I wanna, I wanna provide, perhaps even, even for myself first, is this whole idea of hope, you know, that things can change, mm -hmm. that, uh, that language can be used as tools for a rewriting of a different perception, of a reimagining of a different future, of a, of a, of a rethinking of some of these solutions that can possibly help uh, my community and, and, and families like Estrella, you know? And so, I mean, how could I, you know, when you're writing about the poor, how could you not write about not having enough to eat? How could you not write about all these other things? Mm -hmm. That, you know, you can find, you can find just as many, uh, just as many themes if you're writing about the poor in the Bronx, mm -hmm. or you're writing about the poor in, uh, you know, in, 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 in Texas, or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's everywhere. So it wasn't like I was doing that because I understood the structures of power and how they work. I was doing it because I was writing about this family who was extremely poor, hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, um, as, as I said with, um, uh, I, I love to quote Flannery O'Connor when she said, it is my, I'm paraphrasing, mm -hmm. it is my Catholicism that helps me see the world more clearly so then I could see the distortions mm. with greater clarity. Mm. And for me, it's because of the understanding of these, these power structures that I can see more clearly the oppression that is happening to people like myself. And so I can, I write about that, mm -hmm. you know, that's how I write about that. So yeah, it's uh, it, my responsibility. Uh, I take it very seriously. I take, ver I, take, I take truth very seriously. I don't like to romanticize uh, uh, because to romanticize these, these people is also to then, um, to then devalue the suffering that they do. So if I, if I have to write realistically about the suffering, then I have to write realistically about their limitations as human beings. And we all have limitations about human beings, mm -hmm. of human beings. So um, my responsibility is to create hope, rebuild a perception, re-examine, and, and just think about better ways to, to alleviate suffering um, and, uh, and just reinforce that resiliency. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, you've implied this. Um, one of the things that your work does is make visible experiences that have been invisible to the history of literature or the history of the United States. One of the most striking examples of that is how the novel brings to light the unpaid labor of the women who also work in the right, fields, right? Yeah. They work in the fields, they get paid something, but then they come from the fields and they have all this other work that they still oh, have to absolutely. do. absolutely. And Petra, you know, she, we hear about her varicose veins, right. which become a kind of symbol for yeah. the cost of all this right. unpaid labor. Right. So, um, say a little bit about why women's work is so important in this story. Well, uh, yeah, see that? <laughs> I mean, um, uh, I used to, uh, 
I grew up as a dutiful daughter, believe it or not. <laughs> not until I was 17 and moved out of the house because I, was, I, couldn't, I couldn't live under my father's real patriarchal order. But I realized that my mother was somebody who would get up before all of us and have to, be, have to make tortillas for, you know, uh, we were a total of 11 people. She had to come up with three meals a day on a shoestring bu budget, if in fact a budget existed mm -hmm. to feed all of us. On Fridays were her laundry days where we would go to school and come back and she was still doing the laundry. Uh, and that was before the dinner. I mean, and this was a woman who, who didn't work outside the, the, the house, but was constantly working to take care of the brood of children that she had inside. I could never forget that. Mm -hmm. I was always, so that's why I was the dutiful daughter, because I always felt an incredible sympathy for her. Uh, the fact that she couldn't rest, the fact that as soon as she would sit down, she would fall asleep, mm. you know? And so when I was writing um, uh, uh, Under the Feet of Jesus, of course, I had to honor all of these women like my mother, including Petra, and my mother had varicose veins. Petra has varicose veins. I also, I mean, I was reading the, this, brilliant uh, teaching guide that a number of uh, graduate students and professors um, uh, uh, developed uh, over, uh, over the, the subject of Under the Feet of Jesus and how to teach the novel. And um, I loved that term, the second shift. Mm. I thought, this is so cool. <laughs> this is exactly what I'm writing about. And in fact, in my new novel, The Cemetery Boys, of course, I go back into the fields, and I do have that second shift already there mm -hmm. with the women, uh, the, the, the boys doing a certain thing, uh, the young girls doing a certain thing, but the women do everything from, uh, you know, from, from uh, uh, providing the folklores, uh, to, uh, fo from providing the folk tales to, to making the medicinal teas to, uh, helping one another to, I mean, just everything. They do everything. And, and in, that is why, because you don't get to see that second shift so often. And even in that regard, the second shift is invisible, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. And so that for me, that's always, I always, I'm always attracted to, to bringing the invisible and making it the center stage of my literary universe. Hmm, amazing. So we have just a couple of minutes left. I think this will be my last question. Coincidentally or miraculously, your cousin uh, is a professor <laughs> at the University of Oregon, John Arroyo, who oh. teaches in the College of Design. Tell us a little bit about John and your relationship and what it's like to come to be the speaker here and have your book and have him be here. I am so, so proud <laughs> and impressed. I mean, every time I see, I, in fact, I wrote to him today, and said, every time I see your face, I smile, <laughs> you know? Because, I mean, he, he grew up in that same area. His, his mother and I were best of friends, at, best cousins when we were growing up. In mm -hmm. fact, we grew up uh, right next door to each other until she moved just a few houses down. I mean, you know, about half a mile down. And, uh, and so, I mean, I, I, was, I, I, I loved his mother very much. Uh, and then when, when uh, John caught in contact with me and, and, and had, had told me that he introduced himself as, as Kukita's son and that when he was uh, in, uh, in MIT and getting his uh, PhD, that he gave under the feet of Jesus to each of his committee members. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, and so I just we just started communicating back and forth. Uh, I um, I I am so proud because he grew up in the same area that I grew up, and this is not. I mean, this is 
not at all a privileged area. This is not at all a privileged area. Uh, it, I mean, even in the educational system, uh, it, there was an incredible amount of obstacles mm -hmm. to, to overcome. And yet he ends up at MIT. And I just think that speaks to his dedication. It speaks, uh, and, and then from uh, MIT to return and always think about his studies as in and around the communities that he grew up in. And so I think of him with a great dedication, incredible br brilliance, um, um, this, 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 I don't know, uh, this resiliency to, to come out of this, this, this really poor area uh, and, and make himself into somebody that is helping other people. I am just so proud, and I love him dearly. Well, on that wonderful note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Paul, thank you. Thank you very much. I thought I was going to be nerve-wracked. <laughs> no, 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 no. I've, I've been speaking with writer Helena Maria Veramontes, the Goldwyn Smith Professor of English at Cornell University. Her book, Under the Feet of Jesus, is the University of Oregon's common reading for 2019-2020. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>